And I've always been very aware that silence kills in many ways. I mean, silence may be the right option in certain situations, but as, for example, right now that we're, I mean, since I'm speaking about substance use disorder, addiction, mental illness, not speaking about these conditions actually promotes stigma and it and makes it very easy to ignore and not tackle. And so to me, that's where the whole issue came around. And, and when you speak about science, obviously, and I as a scientist, this is something that I basically consistently uh, repeat to people that I'm mentoring and to my colleagues. If your work, your findings are not communicated, it's like you didn't do it. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Rebel EM. Rebel EM stands for Rational Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And I am glad to bring you my conversation with Dr. Nora Volkov. Nora is the director of NIDA of the NIH. Okay, I'll give you the acronyms. NIH, you know, National Institutes of Health. NIDA is the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which FYI is getting a rename. It's going to be called the National Institute on Drugs and Addiction. Why, you may ask? Well, uh, this is to decrease stigmatizing language. Drug abuse is stigmatizing. Drugs and addiction are not stigmatizing. So means of background. Ever since high school, I've been involved with alcohol and other drug abuse prevention programs. I was a part of something called Youth to Youth, which was youth talking to youth about alcohol and other drug prevention. And I started this in high school, continued this in college, and it's something about which I felt very strongly Uh, And it's not surprising that emergency medicine is a place where we take care of a lot of patients that come in with alcohol and other drug use, addiction, uh, and sequela, consequences of using alcohol and other drugs. So uh, the work of Nora is extremely meaningful to me, and um, it's good stuff. Of note, in 2014, Nora gave a TED Med on addiction, and she was able to bring together a lot of her work. She's been instrumental in demonstrating that drug addiction is actually a brain disorder. As a research psychiatrist, she pioneered the use of brain imaging to investigate how substance use affects brain function. And in particular, her studies have documented how changes in the dopamine system affect the functions of brain regions involved with reward and self-control in addiction. Her work has also made important contributions uh, to neurobiology, obesity, ADHD, and aging. She was born in Mexico, grew up in Mexico City, and she earned her medical degree there from the National University of Mexico. She received the Robbins Award, which interestingly is the award for the best medical student of her generation. She completed her psychiatric residency in NYU, New York University in New York City, where she earned a Laughlin Fellowship, which was given by the American College of Psychiatrists, designating her as one of 10 outstanding psychiatric residents in the United States. Now let's get to the conversation where Nora and I are discussing one of her recent publications in Stat News. In February of 2023, you published a paper in Stat News entitled Pregnant People with Substance Use Disorders Need Treatment, Not Criminalization. And in preparing this episode in our conversation, it struck me that this article brings together many of your passion topics 
uh, within NIDA. Yes, indeed. And in fact, one of the issues, and I'm glad you're bringing up the whole concept of uh, how important uh, overdose mortality from in maternal health is, because it's not something that is recognized and it has very unique challenges. And it's one of the main factors that accounts for the very high rise in maternal mortality that we've seen over the past, I would say, five years that was accelerated during the COVID pandemic is one of the main, main factors accounting for this during pregnancy and the 12 months that follow the pregnancy, the delivery and postpartum. And, and why do I say that NIDRA requires attention? It's because some of the policies from the states that actually criminalize women that are pregnant, that are taking drugs, what they are doing is basically interfering with those women seeking out for help, medical help, to treat their substance use disorders in ways that, of course, increases the risk of overdose and mortality. It's also by uh, having these very punitive practices that some states have, such as the woman can end up incarcerated or the children can be brought to the child welfare system, uh, also negatively impact uh, their families. And, and as such, as uh, overall, we need to understand that uh, addiction, again, more than anything else, is not a choice and that these women, if despite being pregnant, are taking drugs, it is because they are in very, very desperate situations. And so we need to put the resources that are necessary, which will, of course, uh, include provide them with uh, treatment and medications, but also the social support that will allow them to have stable housing, stable the food for, for themselves and, and care during the pregnancy. So those interventions could significantly improve maternal mortality from overdoses as well as maternal mortality in these women for other causes. Yeah. In 2014, uh, you gave a talk, a TED Med talk, Why Do Our Brains Get Addicted? And one of the things you said that really struck me, you know, I never ever met an addicted person who wanted to be an addict nor have I ever met an obese person who wanted to be obese. And all I can say is spot on 100%. So to that end, why do you think we have so much stigma, so much blaming the patient, and that lack of support of people who actually need care and should be taken care of, for example, by doctors? Yeah, no, I think a lot about it because I think that, um, I mean, my question in my brain is always why... What is it in our brain that makes you also judgmental? And I think that there is a structure that allows us to simplify things into good or bad, when in fact the reality of biology is that it's not black and white and we have all sorts of shades. And when you add into it uh, the diverse social environments in which people uh, grow and live, you can then start to understand what this attitude that many people have because of their own experiences. And they say, well, I do like to drink one glass of wine, but I have the, the ability to just determine how much I drink, just like the same sort of thing. I like to eat a chocolate, but I have the ability to control how much you have. Projecting that if I can do that, someone else can do that. But I also make people know that that's also extremely myopic because the reality being is you could use that same argument and say, if someone can run an ultra marathon, ergo, it means you should be able to do it. 
and it highlights that we are all biologically different, and that biological difference are due to multiple factors, uh, including genetics, very importantly, but not just limited to genetics, including what are your alternatives as an individual living in a system that actually have very constrained uh, capacity to accommodate for individuals that don't have resources, that don't have an education, that look different from all of us. So I think that's exactly why we are stigmatizing these conditions, because we are projecting our ability to do that. And we have this need to actually categorize things into good and bad. You were born and grew up in Mexico City. In one of your recordings, you shared that you learned two things. Do not compromise on freedom and do something with your life which must improve the lives of others. Yeah, and, and, I, and these are two precepts that have guided my trajectory. And the reason why I believe that uh, do not uh, basically give up on the whole and, uh, notion of freedom is because it is at the basis of who we are. And, and when, but I, when I speak of freedom, I also think freedom of thinking, freedom of questioning, freedom of basically acting, following your precepts. I think it's important within, of course, the constraint that, that the freedom is always curtailed by other rights. So if you have a desire to basically insult someone else because you don't agree with their, their presets, that basically has a constraint because you are going to potentially hurt someone else. So it is in that context that I was speaking about in terms of, of, of freedom. And the other one, and it does reflect uh, probably how I was brought up uh, in Mexico, um, first family uh, immigrations, uh, the first one generation to be born in Mexico, along with my sisters, from both my parents that were escaping major civil wars of the last uh, century, which were the Russian Revolution with Stalin taking power, and then the civil war with Franco taking power, with all of the devastating and tragic consequences that those civil wars are generated and the sense that uh, they shouldn't have happened, that there is, uh, as sort of the, in the notion, there is a tendency, of course, that you can solve a problem by basically aggression, intolerance, violence, or instead you can use our unique capabilities as humans by ourselves as individuals that get amplified when we, we actually partner with others to improve the outcomes of our fellow human beings. And so, so you, to me, you can just use your all of the capacity of your brain to do harm, or you can use it to maximize advancing our civilization into something that we all feel proud of, for which basically you are giving rights and opportunities to everyone. So those are two precepts that I have followed and that have guided my life. There's a lot of your work and what you say with which I resonate uh, in Mexico City, when you were growing up as a medical student, you received the Robbins Award, which says that it's the best medical student uh, of your generation award. And to that end, of all your accomplishments, of what are you most proud? Well, it's a very difficult uh, thing to place back up. I think that because obviously uh, it depends very much on the context that's surrounding you. But I would say that perhaps to me is to helping advance um, the notion that addiction is a disease of the brain with multiple factors contributing to it, that yes, it does have 
uh, consequences. It is a reflection of changes in brain circuits, but those changes in brain circuits were brought about by drugs are possible because of genetic vulnerabilities, but importantly and crucially by the social environments in which we uh, grow up. And so one of the aspects that we become very aware during the COVID pandemic, we knew it, but we just ignored it, was how crucial the social determinants of health are for in absolutely substance use disorder, for risk or resilience against substance use disorder, but for many other health conditions. So it was not surprising when COVID hit us that you can see the negative consequences that the social determinants of health have, have had in those individuals that come from very deprived environments. They were the ones that have higher rates of infection, the ones that were higher rates of um, dying from COVID, the ones that were basically higher rates of overdose mortality, and also higher rates of all sorts of chronic medical conditions. So, and also the higher rates of incarceration. So you start to see how I think that the COVID pandemic allows us to zoom in um, over a relatively short period of time, how malignant those um, disparities in social wealth have on, on communities and people. And I think within healthcare, we are aware, but I think perhaps the rest of the world the rest of the United States, mainstream society either hasn't been aware or hasn't wanted to see, but I think these are all things that we've known being inside healthcare. Yes, indeed, absolutely. And I sort of just think about it because, I mean, my, my view is, of course, as in, in directing an agency that those science and knowledge to address complex problems, um, in this case, addiction. The question is, so now is how do we navigate the realities, economic realities, and different supports that exist uh, in a very diverse country because the states differ tremendously. Uh, how do we then navigate science to provide interventions that are likely to improve and ameliorate and buffer some of these inequalities? To me, that that's crucial, is that at the essence, so it's we do fund, obviously, research on, on fundamental aspects and uh, that uh, enhance our understanding, but also cleverly identify the areas of knowledge that then can help guide policies so that we can, um, as I say, buffer some of these social inequities. So you speak on these topics, you write on these topics. Uh, I ask my guests about their voice. When do you think you realized you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? I guess when I was a baby and I started to, to cry out, I am hungry. I, I guess I didn't cry, I'm hungry, but I cried, right? And I think that we all have that. I mean, we realize how powerful voice is in terms of communicating. And and I've always been very aware that, that silence skills in many ways. I mean, silence may be the right option in certain situations, but as, for example, right now that we're, I mean, since I'm speaking about substance use disorder, addiction, mental illness, not speaking about these conditions actually promotes stigma and it and makes it very easy to ignore and not tackle. And so to me, that's where the whole issue came around. And, and when you speak about science, obviously, and I as a scientist, this is something that I basically consistently uh, repeat to people that I'm mentoring and to my colleagues 
if your work, your findings are not communicated, it's like you didn't do it. And it is actually worse that if you didn't do it, because there were resources that went into them and people's time and volunteering. And so you are basically, uh, too, not taking the opportunity to use that knowledge. So, so yes, I believe very strongly that we advance things by communicating. And I think that sort of by you and by uh, others challenging one another, I mean, this is communication. This is the way that we learn. And it gives me an opportunity to also express my perspectives and then for you to basically help me guide where there are errors on why you dis may be disagreeing and your perspective and why your perspective is different. So, yes, I, I learned, and I'm not saying it facetiously, that uh, I got a voice when I, was, when I was born, though I don't exactly recollect that, but I do, I do always speak up. Yeah. One of the, what I would call underappreciated, not talked about enough drugs that you have spoken of, and it's been personal, is alcohol. I have, in the emergency department, seen both the upfront as well as the down-the-road effects of alcohol and alcoholism. You have spoken a few times about your favorite uncle being an alcoholic. You had an early experience in the emergency department when you were a student seeing someone killed by a drunk driver, and then you learned at some point that your grandfather died by suicide because he couldn't control, live with, survive his own alcohol addiction. Yes, indeed. And I actually, uh, certainly alcohol was um, the drug that actually led uh, as a medical student and then also even as a resident, led me to more frequent exposure to people taking drugs. And as I said, you you know that, that horrible, uh, and it's just like imprinted in my memories as at night and these this woman that had been run over by someone that was driving and having to tell his son that her mother was dead. I mean, how do you forget that? But but the, the element there or the concept of admitting a patient with severe depression who's also has an alcohol use disorder and nobody addresses that. Nobody questions or tries to intervene for um, sending him to treatment and just sort of this magical expectation that by not addressing it, it will go away and just sort of defeats every single purpose. So, so, and, and I, and I guess it is also, I mean, why, why too, I mean, even at a more elemental level, and it was another patient, I was a medical student that died from bleeding of varicose veins from alcohol and no one, no one had referred him for treatment. So, all of these are just examples of the multiple entries where the healthcare could have a major impact on preventing these adverse outcomes. You know, in many ways, I, I basically, when I look at substance use disorders, just like I was discussing it with respect to the Russian Revolution um, taking over by Stalin and killing all of these people, or the civil war, that all of these deaths from war are really not justifiable. I also view it in addiction, that when people actually die from addiction, it's, a, it's, it's something that could have been prevented. I mean, if you ask me, how do I prevent cancer right now? I sort of, there are some things that we can do. Don't drink alcohol. 
don't smoke cigarettes. Obesity also is linked. But, but again, those are interventions that have a relatively minor effect. Overall, how do you prevent cancer? How do you, deaths from cancer overall, or, or Alzheimer's, right? With addiction, we know. And, and so we have treatments, we have prevention interventions, but we don't deploy them. And I guess this is where I, at the basic, basic of everything, I always sort of say in medicine and where we move into policy, why is it that even though we have solutions to major problems, we don't implement them? And why do we keep of ranking um, medical conditions differently in terms of their importance in such a way that we are much more willing to put a huge amount of resources for treatment of certain conditions than for others. So at the end of the scale is the treatment of substance use disorders. We just don't reimburse physicians sufficiently for them to want to be involved and engaged. And we reimburse them for treatment and even less so, or none at all, reimburse them for prevention. So, I mean, this, this is again, a huge gap. So, so there, therefore, my question in my brain is what type of science and research can be made to ensure that this happens? And, um, and yeah, that is an aspect that we, we all have in the healthcare system to participate towards modifying. NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, is getting a renaming. Can you walk the listeners through what the, the new title will be and the reasoning behind that? Well, yes, I hope that the renaming occurs happily uh, very soon. And I actually, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. We proposed this change more than 12 years ago, and we did a lot of meetings and blah, 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 and nothing happened. So, but now it looks that it's going to be happening, I hopefully soon. Now, why? Because we are the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And abuse is a word that is conditioned in everyone's brain of physical, sexual abuse, psychological abuse. So it connotes a very negative conditioning in terms of the way that it's processed by the brain. It's a stigmatizing word. And so we've been trying to change the word of abuse. And that's as simple as that has been more complicated than anyone would have thought. So the the new name would be National Institute on Drugs and Addictions. And in order to basically get rid of the term abuse. And and I, and again, I do I do think that language is very consequential. And you were saying, when do you have a voice? Yes, I have a voice. And and what do we use for voices? Language. So yes, if we're going to have, uh, we have to use language that is inclusionary and does not create defensive reactions or negative antagonism. And abuse uh, generates negative antagonism. Certainly in my brain, I mean, I think about physical abuse and my amygdala gets activated. I grew up uh, at an age in a generation where cannabis was considered a drug. Uh, in fact, they called it often a gateway drug. From there, you were going to go to harder, more addictive, more serious, more destructive substances. And in the emergency department, uh, many people come in on medical marijuana. People use edibles. Teens are smoking. And uh, hyperemesis uh, from cannabis is common. And I'm wondering, and this is a large 
question, a large topic, but, you know, what is your bottom line regarding cannabis? Well, I mean, cannabis is a complex plant, and we do know that the active ingredient, 9-THC, actually is rewarding, and it produces addiction. We also know that uh, 9-THC, actually, the mechanism by which it um, uh, acts is by activating the endogenous cannabinoid system through uh, in basically interacting with what's referred to as cannabinoid 1 receptors. And these cannabinoid 1 receptors are densely, densely packed in our brains, and they emerge very early on during brain development and are actually directly involved with the developmental patterns that goes from, example, from cell migration to the neurons have to travel from one place to the other uh, in order to create these very complex, diverse sets of networks but also the connections between them, which is ultimately what forms the network, and also to actually set them into motion. So this is orchestrated very, very precisely. And uh, when someone is exposed to cannabis, for example, a mother exposing um, the fetus to cannabis um, will maybe likely uh, affect this, this, this orchestrated process for neurodevelopment. And adolescents taking cannabis at the time when their brain is growing up is, could be very deleterious. So this is one of the questions that we're very concerned about, what could be potentially negative effects of the main ingredient of cannabis. We're also very aware that what the epidemiological data has been now um, proposing based on the data is that the use of regular cannabis, particularly of high-content 9-THC, is associated with higher risk for certain mental disorders. And the most notable and most uh, investigated has been that of schizophrenia. And there's actually just a recent paper that was published this week that uh, from data from electronic health records in Denmark that shows that uh, cannabis accounts for 15%, one 5% incidence of schizophrenia among young males. So there is, um, they indicate that of all of the cases of schizophrenia in males, 15% of them could have been avoided were it not to be for cannabis. So, so this is one of the issues that we need to investigate. Other studies say we cannot establish causality. It may be that there was a vulnerability from genes that influence both your risk to take marijuana and your risk for developing schizophrenia. And it's a valid question, scientific question that needs to be looked into. Uh, but there's also data epidemiological that, for example, shows higher rates of suicidal behavior, and actually a very recent one just came out, uh, among those that consume marijuana and basically higher based on the higher rates of consumption. There's also a very intriguing data starting to emerge that we also shouldn't be ignoring. And again, look at why the association, an association between cannabis consumption and aggressive and violent acts. Now, again, here, I don't want to indicate or anyone to interpret this to mean that smoking marijuana is making people more violent because it could be that people that have aggressive tendencies and impulsive actions that can lead them to be uh, violent and may also be more prone or auto-medicate themselves with marijuana to try to control it. So we don't really know what the association is, but it begs the question that um, we cannot ignore the possibility that indeed the use of cannabis consumption, again, high-content THC, 
regular high doses may be, in fact, a link, causally linked with this in, in some people with these conditions. We need to evaluate it. That's why we have science. That's why we have epidemiological studies. And, and, and this is one of the, the areas we're very interested on, on evaluating, and we've been for many years. But, but at the same time, I do want to highlight that more and more states are actually, I think 38 states and D.C., have um, basically authorized medical marijuana in the states. And, and people are using it for a variety of, of conditions, uh, for some of which there's more evidence, for others there's, there's no evidence whatsoever. But we need to understand whether, in fact, for some people uh, and some indications, uh, cannabis could be potentially therapeutically beneficial, like in certain cases of, of pain conditions or spasticity, so those are areas that I do think that, that we have to investigate because people are using it and we need to provide them data that shows is there evidence or is there not evidence and to indicate whether there, there are risks associated or benefits. Do you think stigma regarding drug use and addiction has changed over time? Tremendously. Stigma has changed in different ways. I think that what, uh, what may have not changed as much as I would like to is the stigma against the people that are um, using drugs, certain drugs. Because, so, for example, the stigma against people that became addicted to prescription opioids during the past two decades has decreased. And, and it was interesting to see because it's actually, I interact with very diverse set of people that are not just academicians, but people involved in policy, policymakers and um, general community people in which they basically make the distinction. Yes, um, he became addicted because a doctor prescribed it, but methamphetamine users or cocaine users, they are at fault. So there, there is like this distinction. I started to see this distinction of people that became addicted because of the, um, a physician prescribed versus the others, as if people had the same choices. You know, you're born into um, a dysfunctional family. One of your parents is in jail. You don't have an education. You are in a neighborhood deprivation environment. I mean, there's drugs all over the place. You you don't have really a good uh, support social system. What are your choices? And I think that that's why. I always come back to the whole concept about how crucial social determinants of health are because the the aspect of um, alternatives for someone are in really intricately involved in whether someone takes drugs and becomes addicted and what ultimately happens to them. The stigma almost seems to break down based on it's part of the systemic racism in the country and socioeconomic status. Yeah, no, and I think that this is uh, epitomized and people have pointed it and I'm glad that they've pointed it in very eloquent ways that basically the um, incarceration of sort of more uh, of certain people with certain demographic characteristics because they take drugs much more than others with different demographic characteristics that take drugs. So there is a tremendous disparity on the way that the black Americans and to a lesser extent, Hispanics were basically incarcerated for the use of drugs. And that was really, if you think about it, an example of structural racism to create a structure in our system that enabled these practices to neg negatively, so negatively impact 
a particular demographic, and it's very chilling when you look at it and says, yeah, this is untenable, absolutely untenable. And um, and indeed, one one of the aspects that the, and one of the main main priorities, and in fact, that when starting when I came to to NIDA to direct NIDA was the concept of um, changing the practice of incarceration of people because they take drugs or are addicted, and 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 if they have committed a a, a crime that does deserve them for be to be incarcerated. In, apart from the fact that they are addicted, to provide them with treatment. Because by providing them with treatment, we improve the likelihood that they will succeed once they are released into the community. Otherwise, they will relapse into drug taking. They will relapse into actually reincarceration because they don't have alternatives. So this is an aspect. And, um, and I can see when you were saying, what are the things that are changing and where the stigma? What I can tell you is that where I've seen major transformational changes has been in the willingness of jail systems and, and criminal setups, I mean, in terms of either, either where it's incarceration or parolees, to generate models of care to provide treatment uh, while people are incarcerated or alternatively just before they are going to be released, and to come up with solutions that will provide them with insurance so that there's continuity of care for the treatment of the substance use disorder once they uh, are released into the community. So that I've seen uh, significant progress. And, and, and the data has, the research has been incredibly useful to document how powerful those interventions and how cost-effective they are. So this is an aspect where I've seen advances. So, uh, so and coming back to that question, I think that where we are now to putting equivalent amount of uh, effort and attention is how do we change practices in healthcare systems so that healthcare providers get involved in screening and intervening based on the severity of the substance use disorder? So if there is a sub-threshold use or dangerous use of drugs, to do an intervention that can protect that person from escalating into a substance use disorder. And if they do have a substance use disorder, to do to treat them. And if it is a very complex condition to refer them to specialized care, just like clinicians do for every other condition. So that's something that we want to penetrate into the medical system. What is your legacy? Well, I think that I would like uh, people to actually, as a legacy, to basically recognize that, that we do have uh, each one of us has the opportunity to make a difference and that it what it basically uh, in improving again uh, coming back to that one of my precepts of improving the life of others and that is crucial and 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 within that legacy specific for man me is how extraordinary important science is to give us tools to address extraordinary complex problems and that we should take the voice of science to actually help us navigate these challenges. The Risa wrap-up. Well, audience, I'd be interested to know. I think you can tell when I really, really, really like my conversations. I mean, I always like my conversations. I value and have so much gratitude for my guests. So thank you so much, Nora. But also there are certain topics that really hit home. Uh, And for me, this topic hit home. I think what has distressed me most 
um, when it comes to taking care of patients with alcohol and other drug addiction is the stigma. The stigmatizing language, uh, the racism I see, and also the blame the victim. I, um, we need to do better, and I think we can do better. And thanks to the work uh, and the policies that are coming out of NIDA under Nora's direction, I think we're getting to a better place. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.